Welcome to Money Isn't Scary, a podcast for women to explore our fears around money and inspire each other to be financially empowered. I'm Megan Dwyer, and I'm making it my personal mission to remove the taboo around money and help women rewrite their stories so they can stop staying small and begin to live life on their terms. In this show, we get real and uncomfortable as we unpack our beliefs, thoughts, and behaviors that aren't serving us anymore. I can't wait for you to join me on this journey. So let's dive in. Hi, you guys. Welcome to another episode of the Money Isn't Scary podcast. I'm Megan Dwyer. I am so excited to share with you guys this week's episode. I am chatting with author Sarah Knight. You likely know Sarah from her best-selling book, The Life-Changing Magic of Not Giving a Fuck, which spawned a whole series of books now part of Sarah's No Fucks Given Guide. Sarah is the coolest. She's real, she's brilliant, and most importantly, she's inspiring. She puts herself out there so that she can help people start to step into their own light and be who they're meant to be. And today, we talk a lot about Sarah's newest book, Grow the Fuck Up, How to Be an Adult and Get Treated Like One. I don't care how old you are, there's plenty of nuggets of wisdom in this book that we all need. It was such a treat talking to Sarah, and I am beyond excited to share this conversation with you guys. But first, a little bit more about Sarah. With more than 3 million copies in print, Sarah Knight's No Fucks Given Guides have been published in 31 languages and appeared on bestseller lists all over the world. Known as the anti-guru for her profane approach to giving practical advice, Knight, a Harvard graduate, worked for 15 years as a top book editor in New York City with authors such as Chris Cleave, James Lee Burke, Jillian Flynn, David Javerbaum, Jen Kirkman, Jessica Knoll, Emily Nagoski, and many more. In 2015, she left corporate publishing to go freelance, moved to the Caribbean, and wrote The Life-Changing Magic of Not Giving a Fuck, which is currently in development for film with New Line Cinema. Her acclaimed series of genius, hilarious, and no-nonsense self-help books include the runaway hits Calm the Fuck Down and Get Your Shit Together, which spent 16 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list, as well as accompanying journals and a no-fucks-given page-a-day calendar. Knight's TEDx talk on the magic of not giving a fuck has 10 million views. She's an in-demand speaker who has headlined events for Warner Media, the Marriott Hotel Group, The Wing, and others. She hosts the, no, the, the popular No Fucks Given podcast, which reached number one on the Apple education charts. Sarah Knight lives in the Dominican Republic with her husband and two rescue cats, Gladys and Mr. Stussy. She is represented for books, film, and speaking by CIA. In our conversation, we talk about Sarah's story from surviving burnout to becoming a best-selling author. How Sarah addresses taking care of ourselves as adults in her new book, Grow the Fuck Up, and how self-awareness is a big part of this. We talk about why we struggle with making decisions and Sarah's best advice on confidently moving forward and how this translates into our fear of making mistakes as well. And so much more, you guys. You can find more from Sarah you can um, at her website, sarahknight.com, where you can find all the information on her books. And you can go check out her newest book, Grow the Fuck Up, How to Be an Adult and Get Treated Like One, anywhere you get your books, including Target. I was there today and saw it on the shelves. She also narrates the audiobook herself if you want to check that out as well. 
You can also find on her website her famous TEDx talk that I just mentioned, and you can also find links to all the episodes of her podcast, the No Fucks Given podcast. Sarah is incredible. I am so excited to share this episode with you guys. So without further ado, here's my episode with the brilliant Sarah Knight. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the Money Isn't Scary podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for inviting me. I'm so excited to be talking to you. I'm a huge fan of yours and your books and your no-nonsense approach to personal development. I actually found out about the life-changing magic of not giving a fuck when I was on an airplane in about 2016-ish. And I was chatting with the girl next to me on the flight and we were just talking about work. And I was like, yeah, I know I'm not really like in love with my job at this time. And she's like, you have to read this book. She was holding it. She was <laughs> literally like, you have to read this book. So I wrote it down. And as soon as I got home, I ordered it and I gobbled it up. And I have referred back to that book so often since then. So I know you have a brand new book that I can't wait to talk about. But before we dive into it, I just love to start by having you Tell everyone how you got into writing and why personal development. Um, well, first of all, music to my ears that uh, that you discovered the book through a stranger on the plane. Love that. Uh, thank you for letting me know. That <laughs> cheers me. Um, I actually was a book editor myself for 15 years in New York City. I worked at several of the, the major publishers in New York. Definitely thought that was going to be my career for the rest of time, planned to die behind the desk, you know, thought I was going to become a publisher and have my own imprint and all of that. And I really just burnt out in a, in a major, major way, um, beginning probably five years before I actually made the decision to leave the job. I started having panic attacks. I write about these very candidly across several of my books. Um, and basically by about 2014, decided... I can't do this anymore. I don't want to work in a corporate job. I feel like I can't be myself. I feel like I'm showing up to this building every day, just kind of being hamstrung by not having the sort of autonomy that I want and not being able to just go after the things that I think are important and and good and valuable and take the risks and take the punishment if it doesn't go out, you know, if it doesn't go well. Uh, and I really realized I needed to work for myself. And so even though I loved editing and I loved, you know, working with authors and collaborating with great writers and discovering new voices, I just couldn't work. I couldn't work for the man anymore. Um, but it took me about a year to make that happen after I made that decision. And that was because I was trying to save up money. It was because I was trying to psych myself into the idea of walking away from what I once thought was going to be my perma career and, you know, and kind of psychologically becoming okay with the idea that I was making this big change and that was stripping away a huge part of my identity. Um, one thing that I did not do when I was a book editor was really edit self-help books. Uh, I did have a couple of books that I think you could call a little bit in the personal development zone, but really more science-based. Um, Dr. Emily Nagoski's book, Come As You Are, The Surprising oh, yeah. Science That Will Transform Your Sex Life. Uh, she was one of my authors. And I worked actually with another um, another author who was doing sort of a memoir that was that was investigating her kind of weird relationship to the self-help world in a somewhat negative way. It was called promised land. Um, and that, which is not to say that she was negative on it, but just, she was taking a real gimlet eye and looking at, you know, the self-help industry and what 
you know, and what that means, like beyond the actual benefit and personal development that we get out of it. Like, is it a little bit exploitative? Is it a lot yeah. of snake oil? That kind of thing. Yes. So with my own background as an editor and, and a reader, frankly, um, I definitely never envisioned myself <laughs> becoming a, a world-renowned purveyor of personal development. Uh, but here we are. And like you said, the new book, Grow the Fuck Up, How to Be an Adult and Get Treated Like One, is the sixth kind of full-length book in this genre that I've done. I also have a few journals and some other stuff out in the world. So it's been it's been a real change of pace um, from the time that I actually walked away from my desk at Simon & Schuster in the summer of 2015. It's so interesting. You talked about burnout because I think that's a topic that comes up so often on my podcast because I've gone through it myself and I know so many women who have as well. It's so universal. Interestingly, you said Emily Nagoski though, because doesn't she have a book about burnout? I think she also has a podcast. Yes. Her follow-up book uh, is called Burnout <laughs> um, and is also excellent. I did not edit that. I was already out <laughs> of the business by that point, but I did blurb it. Um, yeah, she's terrific. Her podcast is great. She's just a really incredibly smart, um, life-changing kind of person. I'm really glad to, yeah. have, to have known her in a professional and a personal capacity. Yeah. So, so how did you, you went through that experience of burnout? Like, tell us your story. So you decided, okay, I don't want to do this anymore. How did you, what went through your mind during that last year when you were like, okay, I, I need an exit. I need an exit. I, this is what I, did you intentionally design what you wanted your life to look like and then kind of move towards that day by day? It was, it was born of desperation. It was, you know, multiple panic attacks, which is something that hadn't happened to me before and figuring out what that was all about. And, um, and it was definitely the onset of depression and just being like, I, I gotta make a change. I have to make a change. Like, I'm not going to survive this if I don't change something. Then it was a real cataloging of what about my life that looks so great on paper, you know, great husband, bought a two bedroom apartment in Brooklyn a few years before, you know, had been married for a few years, everything's going well, really successful in my, you know, professional life, really happy with my social life. Like, why am I so, you know, why, why is my wow. body kind of, uh, you know, turning, turning inside out? Um, and that was when I was able to pinpoint, I just want more autonomy and, and freedom in how I work and what I do. And I just don't want to answer to, um, a committee. I don't want to, I don't want to be on a committee. I don't want to answer to a committee. I don't want to have superiors who are sort of poo-pooing my ideas. Um, I just want to work for myself. And so once I figured that out, the next step was a plan. And I'm a very, you know, I'm a very type A, very organized person. I was also terrified, not just emotionally, um, of walking away from this career, which, as I said, was a huge part of my identity. Um, but financially, I was just and 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 this is where it starts getting kind of icky and weird to talk about because, yeah. you know, I did not grow up in poverty. Um, both of my parents were public school teachers. I grew up in Maine. We did not have a lot of money, but we certainly had, you know, a house and two working vehicles, and they were able to put two kids in orthodonture and, you know, like, so for me to say, like, I was terrified of not having money, like I wasn't going to be someone who is going to be um, out on the street if I walked away from my job. I have, right. you know, a supportive family network. My husband was working at the time and doing well for himself. This was, it was not a rational fear of, of like, 
you know, what am I going to do for money? Like, I have to, I have to figure this out. This has to work. And I just put so much pressure on myself to figure out how I was going to become a freelance editor and like build a website and do all this stuff while I was still working at my day job at a very high level, mm-hmm. not letting on to anybody. I was planning on leaving for 365 days before I did it. Every day I would get up and transfer $23 and 47 cents into my, for my checking account to my savings account and fill in a little red square on a chart that I had in my refrigerator because in 365 days, that was going to give me $10,000. And that was the amount of money that I thought I needed to fund three months of getting, you know, getting the ball rolling on a, on a freelance career. And like, I had mapped that all out. I was like, this wow. is what I need for the bills and stuff. And here's how long it's going to take. And like, so I was just like, laser focused on that aspect of it because I did not want to walk away from this stable if stable in some ways and completely destabilizing in others yeah. Yeah. um career if I was not ready to hit the ground running. And of course going into a freelance life is like the least like stable you yes. know, move yeah. to make after walking away from a 401k and health insurance and all of that stuff. So um so I approached it in a in a very rational, very logical kind of how much money do I think I'm going to need to do this? How long is it going to take me to save that? And again, people who might be listening, you know, might think, wow, you could afford to put $27 into a savings account every day. Like that's more money than I can save in a month. That was where I landed. You know, I couldn't do it in six months. I couldn't do it in nine months, but I felt like that was doable. And when you're living in New York City, that's an extra, thir- you know, glass of wine, like yeah. at a really expensive place or two. Yeah. That's, you know, not buying a pair of shoes you know, some week that you might've bought, that's not taking two taxi cabs in a week or something. Like it was doable for me where I was in my life at that point. But it was like, it was almost like I, it was like this, this commitment that I was making that I was like, well, if I just do this at the end of 365 days, I'll be okay. Like it'll, yeah, it'll be okay. And, you know, and so I did so for an entire year. That's how I handled it. What about mentally? I mean, like mental health wise, like were you, comfortable? Like you knew you needed to do this, but was there also a side of you that was terrified? Oh yeah. There was a, there was a lot of red wine, a lot of tears. Um, my, I said at some point to my husband, like in the couple of days leading up to when I knew I was actually going to walk into my boss's office and quit my job. I said, I I feel like I'm dying. Like I, I, I feel like this is what death feels like. Like I'm just, I'm, I'm like, afraid and I'm uncomfortable and I'm like shaking. And he was like, yeah, well, I'm not surprised because you're basically killing a version of yourself that you thought was going to be the permanent version of yourself. You are, you are actively just shoving that Sarah under a bus. And like, it's no wonder that you feel that way. And I was like, oh, you're very smart. Have you thought about writing personal development books? (laughs) (laughs) Right. That's so interesting too, because I'm asking, because I have been there. I think I've quit two jobs in my life and the, those two things have been single-handedly quitting. Those two jobs have been the hardest things I've done. And I not intentionally gave natural childbirth. And I'm just like, like <laughs> quitting my job was one of the hardest things. And I think that's because for me anyway, the first job I quit was, I think, because I cared so much what people thought of me and I had built an identity, but it was fake, right? Like mm-hmm. I led on to all these people that, who thought I was going to 
work at this company for the rest of my life. I was, I was in it. I was drinking the Kool-Aid and I really wasn't. And I wasn't being true to myself, obviously, because I was just like going around lying to people and pretending that I was somebody that I'm not. And after a while that just eats away at you. So there was something freeing, but uh, about it, but it was also terrifying to me. And I think that was more, again, for me at the time, more because I cared what other people thought than I was really taking a stand for myself. Yeah. And I, as something that I've explored in a bunch of my books, but particularly in the life-changing magic of not giving a fuck when you have to really realize that like you, you can't care so much about what other people think because you can't control what other people think. You know, it's like, you can't, worry about whether somebody likes you. They might not like you because you remind them of someone else they don't like. They might not like you because they were in a bad mood the the day they first met you. It has nothing to do with you. That has to do with them, you know, and you can't control that. So you can't really worry about it. And I went through all of those things, you know, what are my parents going to think? What's my boss going to think? What about my authors who I'm, you know, essentially abandoning in in a very like important time in their professional life, whether I had already edited their book and it was you know, still nine months away from publication or whether I had acquired it, but hadn't done the edits yet, you know, but then I just kept having to remind myself this happens every day. People leave jobs under all kinds of different circumstances and nobody's going to die on the table, you know, like just, it's okay. It's okay. But it was a constant, constant struggle with, you know, what is so-and-so going to think? And I just had to keep, and, and this is, you know, why the book kind of grew out of that experience when I realized like, I can't care what somebody else thinks. Like I need to be in this for number one right now, because otherwise there will be no me to, you know, to, to, to think anything at all. You know, I was becoming really a shell of, um, of a person and I needed to do something about it. And that is so common. It's, there's so many women out there who are, get themselves into this situation, I think, because we are taught as kids, as little girls to, be good little girls to do what we're told. And we think that if we go, we take a job and we just do what we're told and we work our way up, then we're going to be okay. We're going to be taken care of. We're going to be happy, whatever our, you know, that's society's definition of happy, right? You've got, like you said, you've got the good job, you've got the husband, you've got the house, whatever it is to some people, it's the kids in the white picket fence, like whatever all these kind of boxes are that we have to check. And then we get to that point, maybe we've accomplished all those things And we're like having panic attacks or we're depressed or we're crying all the time, or we're just, we're shells of ourselves. Like we're not who we thought we were. And I, again, I think that's because we're going after society's definition of what we should do or of society's definition of what happiness is versus actually being true to ourselves and taking the time to slow down and recognize what makes us happy. Yeah. I think another aspect of that is that, um, that, young girls are socialized to make everyone comfortable, you yeah. know, to serve. What can I do for you? How can I make you feel better? Um, there's certainly a lot of, you know, maternal, um, there, there's a reason for that in like biological evolution of that maternal instinct of, of making somebody feel good and making them feel well and helping them and, and, and serving them. But If you're not doing something for yourself because you're worried it makes other people uncomfortable, like that can become a really big problem where you like, like for me, where I was having these panic attacks and where I didn't want to get out of bed in the morning and I didn't want to put on makeup and heels and I didn't want to get on the subway for 45 minutes. And then I didn't want to be in my office for nine hours and come home and work for another four and do it all over again. 
just because I felt like I didn't want to make some people uncomfortable, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, yeah. like my discomfort was, was at, you know, was at an 11 on the, on the one to 10 scale. And I was just worried about giving other people like a two, you know, oh, my boss is going to have to replace me. Well, that's what your job is as a boss. You replace employees who leave, like it's not that yep. big of a deal. So yep. yeah, very well put. I think it's, it just goes to show how we are again, just like we grow up to be taught to take care of everybody else and put ourselves at the bottom of the list. And that's why when it even comes time to, you know, they talk about self-care, right? Self-care is super trendy now and everything. And we don't really know when it's like, how do you take care of yourself? I don't know. I don't know how to take care of myself. And I think this is probably a good transition into talking about your new book, Grow the Fuck Up, because I feel like here we are as adults and we haven't been taught how to actually take care of ourselves, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, I started out wanting to write the book for a younger audience because I thought, well, this is something I haven't done yet. You know, I haven't really addressed young people. And I was getting a lot more younger fans as the years went on. I think as TikTok grew in popularity, some younger people were discovering like my book, Calm the Fuck Down. And I thought, oh, well, maybe I can help them kind of prepare to enter, you know, adult society. But then when I started working on it, I realized that we all need this advice. This is the kind of thing that that everybody needs. If they didn't know it already, they need to learn it. And if they learned it, they can use a reminder. I mean, I certainly know that I can use a reminder. Um, the fact is, you know, you're an adult when no one else is morally or legally obligated to do things for you. Um, when nobody else is, you know, their job is not to help you thrive, like your parents' jobs or maybe your grandparents or your babysitters or your coaches or your teachers you know, you are independent and you are out there doing it for yourself. And it doesn't mean that you won't have, um, you know, a family or a, you know, a friend group that offers you support. It's just that it's not their job to meet your needs. Your job is to meet your needs. And you can't do that without a certain level of self-awareness to understand what your needs are in the mm -hmm. first place. And some of us don't figure this out until we're 35 and some of us don't figure it out until we're 55. Um, and that's what Grow the Fuck Up, you know, begins on is this note of increasing your ability to be self-aware and and to understand what you want, what you need, and then how to express it, you know, how to do so in, a, in an adult way that's persuasive and that's going to get you to your goal. You know, there's no tantrum throwing and you can't just walk in and demand something like you could do when you were three years old. Like you have to really think things through. Um and develop these these skills and mindsets. Um, understand that sometimes you have to take initiative. That you know you have to be the leader. Sometimes you know you can say these are my boundaries, and I'm not doing this group project for everybody else anymore. And so, yeah. um, you know, it's there's there's a lot in there. But I think that um, for me, it's about distilling the concept of adulthood and successful adulting into three pillars, which is maturity, responsibility, and accountability. And doing it for my readers in a way that is easy and logical and that, that makes perfect sense and isn't that hard to implement um, in your life. And so when I get to the part of the book where I talk about your financial health, uh, I'm very, you know, I'm very candid there to say like, money freaks me out. It always has. I definitely don't have a super healthy relationship to it, with it, about it. Um, my financial circumstances have changed significantly over time in very good and very not good ways. Um, but 
I can't let that ickiness prevent me from letting readers know that they have to think about and strategize about and become comfortable with this stuff. And so I break it down into other skills like, you know, prioritizing, like prioritizing is an amazing adult skill that will serve you in so many ways. And budgeting is just prioritizing. It's saying, I need this more than I need that. I want this more than I want that, you know, and being resourceful. If you can't afford something, how do you make more money to be able to afford it? Or how do you spend less money on another thing to be able to afford it? And again, I understand that I'm coming at this from a level of privilege where there are some people who are like, there's not enough that I can, you know, discard from my, from my daily expenditures to meet this other need that I want. It's out of reach. Um, and that's, that's understandable. And I'm not trying to say that like just being able to budget can solve this problem, but it's these underlying skills that help you in all of your adult life um, that will help you, I think, not only improve your own relationship to money and how you think about yourself and, and, and how it makes you feel, but also just improve your understanding of how money works and what it does yeah. for you and in this society and how to, you know, how to handle it in the best possible way that you can. Yeah. And I, the way I approach this is I like to talk about it with, you know, take this with massive amounts of self-compassion because we weren't taught this stuff in school. So growing up, again, we weren't taught how to take care of ourselves. Maybe some people were, I wasn't personally. Um, I just watched my mom be a martyr for my whole life. But I wasn't, we weren't taught how to handle our personal finances. We weren't taught what a 401k is. We weren't taught how to budget or, I mean, and again, I agree with you. I think budgeting is more intention setting and using your dollars in a way that makes you feel good versus just not even like reactive mode and just doing things without thought behind it. But yeah, I mean, I think mindset around this is a, is a huge, huge, huge piece. And that I think is something that's, that's missing. I think really taking the time to get quiet and understand who we are and what we want and having that self-awareness is so key in all of this. And I know in my life, my life is crazy and chaotic. And I call it like the, how I refer to it as like, okay, I'm hopping on the treadmill and I hop off at the end of the day and then I go to sleep and then I hop back on every day because it's just like constant, right? There's just so much coming at us, whether you have kids or you don't, we're just in this world too. That's just, everything is just instant. Everything is right at us or always phones, emails, everything is always there. Right. So we have to, in, in my mind anyway, and I'd love your thoughts on this. We have to intentionally find a way to, to get rid of all that noise and find a place to just be quiet. And that way we can check in with ourselves and actually learn about ourselves. I feel like we change constantly. I'm a different person. I'm almost 40. I, I'm a different person now than I was five years ago. And then I was even a different person than I was three years before that. Like we were changing constantly. So it's like, what do I even like today? Who am I? What do I want? Yeah. And I mean, I think even before you get to that point where you can examine the changes that you're going through. Um, where you can find that quiet space to do it, you have to accept that change is okay. And this is something that I really struggled with when I was, you know, thinking about quitting my job in 2014, 2015. Um, I just thought like, but, but this was the way, this was what 
how it was going to be. And I can't, you know, like change feels like failure. Change feels like giving up. Change feels like there's shame, you know, and I really had to get past that and remind myself. And this is part of just getting older. You know, you, you hear like, you know, in my parents' generation, it's like, you know, back in my day, but it's yeah. true. I'm almost 45 and I don't want the same things I wanted when I was 25. And I'm not the same person I was when I was 35. And like you, you learn over time, sometimes, you know, involuntarily, um, mm-hmm. at sometimes you're wide open to the concept of learning. I wasn't wide open to it. You know, I know a lot of people who are, but I wasn't. And so I learned it in a much more kind of blunt and brutal way that change does not equal failure and it doesn't equal giving up and it doesn't equal shame and it doesn't, it doesn't equal wrong or incorrect. It's just change, you know? So yeah, if you can get to that point where you understand that change is perfectly fine and normal and often really good and you know what, and sometimes it's bad and you're like, well, I guess I'll have to make another change because this one, you know, yeah. this one didn't work out. Yeah. Um, then you can get to the point where you can say, okay, what changes do I personally want and need? to make, like now that I am comfortable with the idea of it. Uh, cause I do think that that's a step that, that can get skipped. Like you're like, I have to make a change, but you're not yet comfortable with even the concept of change. So, yeah. um, so anyway, that's, you know, based on a, a really particularly rough period of time in my life, that's what I came out thinking. And, um, and, you know, this is another thing that kind of goes back to the new book about grow the fuck up. It's like, I wanted I was thinking about how, you know, we're in this, these pandemic years and I had a, a new nephew. My first nephew was born in the middle of all of that. And I was like, I was like, the, the youngs are going to have to save us all. You know, it's like yeah, world's yeah. ending. Like yeah. we need to, we need to raise a generation of, you know, resourceful initiative taking independent, dependable human being. It's like, how can I, you know, how can I kind of convey that? Um, and as different members of my editing and publishing team read earlier drafts of the book, you know, some of them said, look, you can't put this all on the young people. Like, that's not fair. Like a Zoomer is going to pick up this book and be like, I'm sorry, I have to fix something that my forebears broke. Um, yeah. And it really, it reminded me that like, we're all, whether we're 25 or 45 or 65, we all need to be reminded that we are going to have to figure out ways to be more resourceful. We are going to have to solve problems for ourselves. You know, we are going to have to be flexible and make changes and accept changes that we didn't want to make. Um, if we are to collectively move forward and kind of thrive. And so this is something that, you know, I, I say like go out there and be the adult you want to see in the world, because yeah. I'd certainly prefer to be surrounded by people who are, emotionally healthy and mature, you know, people who are responsible, dependable, reliable, they don't have, they can have tough days. Just all of us can have tough days. But if most of us are, you know, are in my parlance, total fucking grownups, then we're going to be able to lift each other up. So, you know, when I was having my big, you know, identity crisis and, and also like worried about finances and, and the nuts and bolts of making these big life changes. My husband was there to kind of pick up those pieces. Um, and that's not his job. And, you know, I didn't, it's, I'm not saying that, you know, make sure that you're in a a committed relationship where the other person can, can help out when you're a disaster. But if, but he also knows that I'm the adult in the room when he's going through something very difficult for him. And so we all kind of muster these, adult tendencies, then I think that we're all going to be better friends, better 
spouses, better colleagues, um, you know, day role day. models. Right. I mean, I, mm-hmm. again, I live with two little ones of a seven-year-old and an almost five-year-old. And I realize that they are watching everything and they're, they listen, they hear every word I say. And sometimes it's hard because you don't want to act like an adult, right? Sometimes you just want to cry. Sometimes you just want to have the temper tantrum, right? But you can't and you have to, or, or you can compose yourself and you can handle it in a different, in a maybe more mature way and go, you know, have your temper tantrum behind the scenes or whatever, because you still have to honor those feelings and get those emotions out. Absolutely. You've got to process those. But I think the more that we can show the next generation that we can handle this, the more confident they're going to feel. And that I think is going to start to instill change in general. And, you know, I think I liked what you said about sort of challenging the norms, right? Like challenging some of those things that we were taught or those beliefs that we had, like, you you know, I had a similar experience in my career where I remember when I first, my first job out of college, I worked for a big company and I remember my dad saying, awesome, you get to a big company, they'll take care of you. You'll work there your whole career because a lot of people did. There were so many people that retired that were there for 30, 40, 50 years. And that was the world back then. That was what it was. They, they took care of you. But that doesn't mean that that was the right place for me. And it, as it turns out, it wasn't. Culturally, it was after a while, it was not. And everything shifted. But it's like, I'm changing I need to be able to honor that and know that that's just that we don't stay the same person throughout our entire life. We we're constantly evolving and we're constantly having to adapt to those changes and learn to be ourselves in any given moment. Yeah. And I think that, you know, it's hard when you wind up being the first or among the first people in your friend group or your family or your graduating class or whatever to do something a little bit differently. You know, I write a lot about how to deal with your family and boundaries and things like that. Um, And, you know, one thing that I kind of realized when I was talking about this, you know, in the last couple of years, uh, publicizing other books of mine, it was that for a long time, like you didn't move away because you couldn't like families grew up and and whole generations of families lived in the same town and nobody nobody went off you know because like you couldn't afford it or there were no opportunities elsewhere or the travel was impossible you know but we but now we're in a world where like you can as i did you know leave your home in maine go to college in boston move to new york city and then move to a, the Dominican Republic, which is where I've been living for the last seven years. And that can be hard for some parents, not, not saying mine, but like, like I always, I was like, yeah, I'm going to do this. Like, I'm not going to stay in South Berwick, Maine for the rest of my life. Like, why would I do that? But there are, but there are a lot of people who, who want these changes and their families are like, no, like you're, you can't go so far away. You can't leave us. Like, what are you doing? Like, do you hate us? Like, why do you want to be somewhere else? And it's like, because we have the opportunity to be somewhere else now, because it's easy to get on a plane or a train, you know, because like, it's not a a month long steamship across the Atlantic. If I decide that I want to move to London, it's a, it's a flight. Um, So I I do think that like, whenever you're on the leading edge of a cultural shift, 
it's difficult because you haven't seen anybody else do it yet. And you're the, you know, you're, you're among the first as, you know, I'm a woman in my mid forties who doesn't have children on purpose because I don't want to. And that like was a lot bigger a deal 15 years ago when I was telling people when I was 30, have no intention of having kids, not going to do it. Don't really like children. Here are all my reasons. Like now they kind of look at me and they're like, well, she's probably past (laughs) past (laughs) the ability to change her mind anyway. But like at the time I felt very much on a, on more of a forefront of women who are making that decision. And 15 years later, I feel like it's much more socially acceptable and much more, and it's happening a lot more that, that women are deciding to be child-free. So, you know, in, in terms of like being, you know, being an adult, being a grown up, and, and, and you, like you said, you have to like allow yourself permission to feel these feelings. Like you can feel nervous about doing something that nobody else has done. You can feel, um, you know, unsure, like you're taking a big risk. You can kind of, give in to, to the, the anxiety over making a a choice like that, but like then set it aside. Like I call it creating your emotional puppies. This is for my book, calm the fuck down. Like have, have your puppy run around the living room, have your emotion do its thing, you know, give it some time and space and then pick it up by the scruff of the neck and put it over in, you know, another part of your brain and just turn the lock because you can't get anything done with a puppy running around. Well, you're (laughs) Um, right. You know, right. Yeah. It just gets in your way. And I mean, there's so much like we can come up with so many excuses for the reasons not to do something. I mean, we still live in a culture that like puts the, the even though it has shifted and it's starting to change, we still live in a culture that puts old gender role stereotypes on men and women. And there is pressure for women, I feel like at any age to be like, okay, when are you going to have kids? When are you going to start a family? When are you going to do this? And it's just like, where's the openness and the capacity to just accept you for you and accept your decisions for whoever you are. I mean, I think it's starting to change and I'm, I'm glad to see that. And I do think, again, considering what I just said about kind of being those role models, we may not think that we can make change, but we can like every day we're do through our actions and through our words and through the way that we're presenting ourselves and our thoughts and our opinions and our beliefs, we can change because people are watching what we're doing. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. So before we wrap up, because I could talk to you forever, I know in your book, you talk about a couple of things. You talk about decision-making and making mistakes. And I think those two things are are kind of go hand in hand, especially for, for women. Um, I actually did a recent episode of my podcast on this whole concept of decision fatigue, because we can hem and haw over a simple decision forever, forever. And it's, and we can procrastinate and we can beat ourselves up because we're so afraid about being wrong and, you know, being, I think that comes from like the natural inclination. Most women have to be perfectionists. Right. But it feels so good when you finally do make a decision. So I just want to get your thoughts on that and sort of how you tell everybody a little bit about how you talk through it in the book and how we can learn from our mistakes and all of that. Yeah. I think that for people who are paralyzed with indecision because they're afraid that they're going to make the wrong decision. um, What I, what I say is just go straight to the heart of the matter and ask yourself, what is the worst that could happen? Um, and this is not about catastrophizing. You know, if you, if you, if you think, if, if you're saying, oh, the worst that could happen is my plane could fall out of the sky. Well, that's statistically highly unlikely. And I'm saying this as somebody who is very scared of flying. Um, just, you know, 
realistically, what's the worst that could happen if you are trying to decide, um, you know, which college to go to? You've been accepted to a couple of different places and you're like, but what if I make the wrong choice? If you're trying to decide whether to get into a committed relationship or get out of a committed relationship with someone, really sit down and think, okay, this is what I want to do. This is the decision I want to make. What's the worst that could happen? And when you when you confront the realistic worst that could happen, it's just usually not that bad. And yeah. it's also like nobody has a crystal ball. So if you're choosing between the University of Kansas and the University of Illinois, like if you never make a decision, you never get to have a college experience, you know, and that's where the analysis paralysis comes in. And I, so in order to get people out of that, to shake them out of that mode where they're afraid they're going to do the wrong thing, just be like, okay, what's the worst that can happen? Can I handle that? If that's what happens? Yes. People handle that all the time. So make the decision and then you get to have you know, the, the fruits of whatever that, that decision was. Like if you never make the decision, you never get to have, maybe you avoid the bad experience, but you never get to have the good experience. So I think that that's really important. Um, also, you know, for, for perfectionists, like there's something to be said for making the decision to stop working on something, stop tweaking it, stop compulsively going back to it, you know, to just say like, I'm done with this, let's move on. And even if you ask yourself, what's the worst that could happen? Like my newsletter goes out into the world with a typo. Like I was a professional editor for 15 years and I can't seem to manage to send a newsletter out into the world without a typo. And I've just had to become okay with it because it's just not that bad. It's just not that bad. Um, and then uh, the other thing is like, you know, failure and learning from your mistakes. This is, runs all through the third part of the book, which is about accountability. It's like, we are no, we are... We have, we've negated all of the growing up that we have tried to do if we don't learn from our mistakes. We're going to make them. And the most valuable thing that you can do is just, you know, just do a little post-game, little post-mortem, like, how did I get there? You know, I made this mistake. This thing turned out the wrong way. What were the little decisions I made that led up to it or the actions or the behavior that I engaged in that led up to it? Can I see where, you know, where where I went wrong? Okay, don't do it again. You know, I mean, this is just not um, it's like going back to our childhoods when we, you know, when somebody said, like, don't don't run, don't don't run down the driveway, you'll fall and skin your knee. Don't do it. Don't do it. And you did it and you skin your knee and you're like, OK, I know what happens now. Now I know what happens when I run down the driveway. That There was a reason they told me not to do that, you know, yep. and so you learn from it. And you don't do it again or, you know, hopefully maybe it takes you a couple of tries. Um and it's just like that to me is the epitome of being a total fucking grown up is being somebody who can hold themselves accountable for their actions and behavior and take a, a real, you know, responsible look at, at what they did and how they got where they are and just commit to not doing it again, commit to learning from it. Yeah. And sometimes it mistakes are unavoidable, right? And I mm -hmm. think we have to recognize the common humanity in all of that, that we're human. We are literally human. Things are going to get missed. You know, whether sometimes you can't foresee some, there are a lot, there's always lessons, right? But sometimes you can't foresee what the, what the lesson in it is going to be. So you just try your best every day. That's how I feel. I mean, I think again, approaching this whole thing with a, with an overarching like layer of self-compassion and recognizing that we're not alone. We're in this together. We are humans and we're doing the best we can. And we all experience this. So that's how I, my journey with making mistakes has been a long one. I mean, I used to, 
I had a fear that every mistake I made at work, I was going to get fired for, for doing. And it was, it, it's, it's all silly at the end of the well, day. Well, it's crippling. You know, yes. the fear of failure oh. is, is worse than failure itself. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, one of the most liberating and empowering things you can learn to do is just to apologize, you know, just to acknowledge that you've made a mistake, whether it's to yourself and showing yourself compassion or to somebody else and be like, yep, I did that. I made a mistake. I'm sorry. I'm going to clean it up and it won't happen again. And that can save you from nights of laying awake, thinking about mm -hmm. what you did and what other people think about what you did and what are going to be the consequences of what you did. Just take that. And for me, it's, it was really hard to learn how to do that. My husband is infuriatingly good at admitting when he's wrong and apologizing immediately. Um, so I have some healthy competition, uh, which has kind of motivated me to get better at it. But really like it is it, instead of having it feel bad and like compounding the trauma and the shame of the thing that you did wrong, just saying you're sorry is like you get to start over. Like it's yeah. very empowering. It's very liberating. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, it's taking ownership and again, like taking responsibility and accountability for, for what you've done and how, and you know, how you've made other people feel or how you've negatively impacted their lives and apologizing for it and moving on. Moving on is the key piece of that clean slate, just reset. Here we go. Right. It's and that, that I think is so important to just not keep beating yourself up afterwards. So the reset is so refreshing, I think, and so important there. Okay. I know we have to wrap up. I could talk to you forever, but <laughs> you, know, you are the absolute best. Please tell everybody how they can find the book and where they can learn more about you. Sure. Uh, well, the new book is called Grow the Fuck Up, How to Be an Adult and Get Treated Like One. You should be able to find it wherever books are sold. It's also an audiobook that I narrate myself. So if you've enjoyed listening to me crooning in your ears for the last half hour, you might want the audio edition. Um, and you can go to sarahknight.com and find everything about me. It's Sarah with an H, K-N-I-G-H-T dot com. And all of the books are there. And uh, my No Fucks Given podcast, all those episodes and my TED Talk, which if you haven't seen it, is a really good primer for the life-changing magic of not giving a fuck. So Sarah, oh, it's, awesome. it's awesome. Everybody has to go check it out. Thank you so much, Sarah. This has been such a pleasure. I really appreciate your time. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.